Hello, Catholic Divas. Welcome to Cycles and Sanctity Podcast. I am Mama Jane, wife to Steve for almost 37 years, mother of six wonderful children, fertility awareness instructor, and a Catholic mindset coach. Are you confused about your cycle? Do you want to learn how charting your cycles can give you insight, not only to your health, but your mental and emotional state as well? And most importantly, using this information to draw closer to God and pursue your path to holiness? If you answered yes, then you are in the right place. Go grab your journal and your favorite pen and let's do this. Welcome back, Catholic Divas. This is a very special episode. This week is actually National NFP Week. And so what I thought I would do is give you two episodes because this is a long encyclical, but I'm actually going to read to you the encyclical letter Humanae Vitae of the Supreme Pontiff Paul VI. I've been talking about this encyclical all month, and I just know that everyone's busy. And even though it's only 31 paragraphs, it's very intense. And so I want to give you this gift of actually just listening to the encyclical. One of the things that I discovered as a homeschool mom was a philosophy or an idea or a mindset of going back to the source. You could read a lot about what people are saying about the constitution or whatever, whatever. But when you read the source yourself, then you will know for yourself, which is why we always go back to scripture. So I'm giving you this opportunity to just simply listen. We're going to take it in two episodes because like I said, this is very long. So this will be a two episode week and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will bless you, enlighten your mind, heal your heart and to move your will so that you will glorify God in all that you do and especially with your body. All right, let us begin. To his venerable brothers, the patriarchs, archbishops, bishops, and other local ordinaries in peace and communion with the apostolic see, to the clergy and faithful of the whole Catholic world, and to all men of goodwill on the regulation of birth control, honored brothers and dear sons, health and apostolic benediction. The transmission of life is a most serious role in which married people collaborate freely and responsibly with God the Creator. It has always been a source of great joy to them, even though it sometimes entails many difficulties and hardships. The fulfillment of this duty has always posed problems to the conscience of married people, but the recent course of human society and the concomitant changes have provoked new questions. The Church cannot ignore these questions, for they concern matters intimately connected with the life and happiness of human beings. Number 1. The Problem and Competency of the Magisterium Paragraph 2. The changes that have taken place are of considerable importance and varied in nature. In the first place, there is a rapid increase in population, which has made many fear that world population is going to grow faster than available resources, with the consequences that many families and developing countries would be faced with greater hardships. This can easily induce public authorities to be tempted to take even harsher measures to avert this danger. There's also the fact that not only working and housing conditions, but the greater demands made both in the economic and educational field pose a living situation in which it is frequently difficult these days to provide properly for a large family. Also noteworthy is a new understanding of the dignity of a woman and her place in society, of the value of conjugal love in marriage and the relationship of the conjugal act to this love. 
But the most remarkable development of all is to be seen in man's stupendous progress in the domination and rational organization of the forces of nature to the point that he is endeavoring to extend this control over every aspect of his own life, over his body, over his mind and emotions, over his social life, and even over the laws that regulate the transmission of life. Number three, new questions. This new state of things gives rise to new questions. Granted, the conditions of life today in taking into account the relevance of married love to the harmony and mutual fidelity of husband and wife, would it not be right to review the moral norms in force till now, especially when it is felt that these can be observed only with the gravest difficulty, sometimes only by heroic effort? Moreover, if one were to apply here the so-called principle of totality, could it not be accepted that the intention to have a less prolific but more rationally planned family might transform an action which renders natural processes infertile into illicit and provident control of birth? Could it not be admitted, in other words, that procreative finality applies to the totality of married life rather than to each single act? A further question is whether, because people are more conscious today of their responsibilities, the time has not come when the transmission of life should be regulated by their intelligence and will rather than through the specific rhythms of their own bodies. Interpreting the Moral Law, number four. This kind of question requires from the teaching authority of the church a new and deeper reflection on the principles of the moral teaching of marriage a teaching which is based on the natural law as illuminated and rich by divine revelation. No member of the faithful could possibly deny that the church is competent in her magisterium to interpret the natural moral law. It is in fact indisputable, as our predecessors have many times declared, that Jesus Christ, when he communicated his divine power to Peter and the other apostles and sent them to teach all nations his commandments, constituted them as the authentic guardians and interpreters of the whole moral law, not only, that is, the law of the gospel, but also of the natural law. For the natural law, too, declares the will of God, and its faithful observance is necessary for men's eternal salvation. In carrying out this mandate, the Church has always issued appropriate documents on the nature of marriage, the correct use of conjugal rights, and the duties of spouses. These documents have been more copious in recent times. Number five, special studies. The consciousness of the same responsibility induced to confirm and expand the commission set up by our predecessor, Pope John XXIII of Happy Memory, in March 1963. This commission included married couples, as well as many experts in the various fields pertinent to these questions. Its task was to examine views and opinions concerning married life and especially on the correct regulation of birth, and it was also to provide the teaching authority of the Church with such evidence as would enable it to give an aptly reply in this matter, which not only the faithful, but also the rest of the world were waiting for. When the evidence of the experts had been received, as well as the opinions and advice of a considerable number of our brethren in the episcopate, some whom set their views spontaneously, while others were requested by us to do so, we were in a position to weigh with more precision all the aspects of this complex subject. Hence, we are deeply grateful to all those concerned. Paragraph 6, the Magisterium's Reply. However, 
the conclusions arrived at by the Commission could not be considered by us as definitive and absolutely certain, dispensing us from the duty of examining personally this serious question. This was all the more necessary because, within the Commission itself, there was not complete agreement concerning the moral norms to be proposed, and especially because certain approaches and criteria for a solution for this question had emerged which were at variance with the moral doctrine on marriage constantly taught by the magisterium of the Church. Consequently, now that we have sifted carefully the evidence sent to us, intently studied the whole matter, as well as prayed constantly to God, we, by virtue of the mandate entrusted to us by Christ, intend to give our reply to this series of grave questions. Part 2. Doctrinal Principles. Paragraph 7. The question of human procreation, like every other question which touches human life, involves more than the limited aspects specific to such disciplines as biology, psychology, demography, or sociology. It is the whole man and the whole mission to which he is called that must be considered, both its natural, earthly aspects and its supernatural, eternal aspects. And since in the attempt to justify artificial methods of birth control may appeal to the demands of married love or of responsible parenthood, these two important realities of married life must be accurately defined and analyzed. This is what we mean to do, with special reference to what the Second Vatican Council taught with the highest authority in its pastoral constitution on the Church in the world of today. Paragraph 8. God's Loving Design Married love particularly reveals its true nature and nobility when we realize that it takes its origin from God, who is love, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Marriage, then, is far from being the effect of chance or the result of the blind evolution of natural forces. It is in reality the wise and provident institution of God, the Creator, whose purpose was to effect in man his loving design. As a consequence, husband and wife, through that mutual gift of themselves, which is specific and exclusive to them alone, develop that union of two persons in which they perfect one another, cooperating with God in the generation and rearing of new lives. The marriage of those who have been baptized is, in addition, invested in the dignity of a sacramental sign of grace, for it represents the union of Christ and His Church. Paragraph 9. Married Love In the light of these facts, the characteristic features and exigencies of married love are clearly indicated, and it is of the highest importance to evaluate them exactly. This love is, above all, fully human, a compound of sense and spirit. It is not, then, merely a question of natural instinct or emotional drive. It is also, and above all, an act of the free will, whose trust is such that it is meant not only to survive the joys and sorrows of the daily life, but also to grow so that husband and wife become, in a way, one heart and one soul, and together attain their human fulfillment. It is a love which is total that very special form of personal friendship in which husband and wife generously share everything, allowing no unreasonable exceptions and not thinking solely of their own convenience. Whoever really loves his partner loves not only for what he receives, but loves the partner for the partner's own sake, content to be able to enrich the other with the gift of himself. 
Married love is also faithful and exclusive of all other, and this until death. This is how husband and wife understood it on the day on which, fully aware of what they were doing, they freely vowed themselves to one another in marriage. Though this fidelity of husband and wife sometimes presents difficulties, no one has a right to assert that it is impossible. It is, on the contrary, always honorable and meritorious. The example of countless married couples prove not only that fidelity is in accord with the nature of marriage, but also that it is the source of profound and enduring happiness. Finally, this love is fagund. It is not confined wholly to the loving interchange of husband and wife. It also contrives to go beyond this to bring new life into being. Marriage and conjugal love are by their nature ordained toward the procreation and education of children. Children are really the supreme gift of marriage and contribute in the highest degree to their parents' welfare. Paragraph 10. Responsible Parenthood. Married love, therefore, requires a husband and a wife the full awareness of their obligations in the matter of responsible parenthood, which today, rightly enough, is much insisted upon, but which at the same time should be rightly understood. Thus, we do well to consider responsible parenthood in the light of its varied legitimate and interrelated aspects. With regard to the biological processes, responsible parenthood means an awareness of and respect for their proper functions. In the procreative faculty, the human mind discerns biological laws that apply to the human person. With regard to man's innate drives and emotions, responsible parenthood means that man's reason and will must exert control over them. With regard to physical, economic, psychological, and social conditions, responsible parenthood is exercised by those who prudently and generously decide to have more children, and by those who, for serious reasons and with due respect to moral precepts, decide not to have additional children for either a certain or an indifferent period of time. Responsible parenthood, as we use the term here, has one further essential aspect of paramount importance. It concerns the objective moral order which was established by God and of which a right conscience is the true interpreter. In a word, the exercise of responsible parenthood requires that husband and wife, keeping a right order of priorities, recognize their own duties towards God, themselves, their families, and human society. From this, it follows that they are not free to act as they choose in the service of transmitting life, as if it were wholly up to them to decide what is the right course to follow. On the contrary, they are bound to ensure that what they do corresponds to the will of God the Creator. The very nature of marriage and its use makes His will clear, while the constant teaching of the Church spells it out. Paragraph 11, Observing the Natural Law the sexual activity in which husband and wife are intimately and chastely united with one another, through which human life is transmitted, is, as the recent council recalled, noble and worthy. It does not, moreover, cease to be legitimate, even when, for reasons independent of their will, it is foreseen to be infertile. For its natural adaptation to the expression and strengthening of the union of husband and wife is not thereby suppressed. The fact is, as experience shows, that new life is not the result of each and every act of sexual intercourse. 
God has wisely ordered laws of nature and the incidence of fertility in such a way that successive births are already naturally spaced through the inherent operations of these laws. The Church, nonetheless, in urging men to the observance of the precepts of the natural law, which it interprets by its constant doctrine, teaches that each and every marital act must of necessity retain its intrinsic relationship to the procreation of human life. Paragraph 12, Union and Procreation. This particular doctrine, often expounded by the magisterium of the Church, is based on the inseparable connection established by God, which man on his own initiative may not break between the unitive significance and the procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. The reason is that the fundamental nature of the marriage act, while uniting husband and wife in the closest intimacy, also renders them capable of generating new life. And this as a result of laws written into the actual nature of man and of woman. And if each of these essential qualities, the unitive and the procreative, is preserved, the use of the marriage fully retains its sense of true mutual love and its ordination to the supreme responsibility of parenthood to which man is called. We believe that our contemporaries are particularly capable of seeing that this teaching is in harmony with human reason. Paragraph 13, Faithfulness to God's Design Men rightly observe that a conjugal act imposed on one's partner without regard to his or her condition or personal and reasonable wishes in the matter is no true act of love and therefore offends moral order in its particular application to the intimate relationship of husband and wife. If they further reflect, they must also recognize that an act of mutual love which impairs the capacity to transmit life which God the Creator through specific laws has built into it, frustrates his design, which constitutes the norm of marriage and contradicts the will of the author of life. Hence, to use this divine gift while depriving it, even if only partially, of its meaning and purpose is equally repugnant to the nature of man and of woman, and is consequently in opposition to the plan of God and His holy will. But to experience the gift of married love while respecting the laws of conception is to acknowledge that one is not the master of the sources of life, but rather the minister of the design established by the Creator. Just as man does not have unlimited dominion over his body in general, so also, and with more particular reason, he has no such dominion over his specifically sexual faculties, for these are concerned by their very nature with the generation of life and of which God is the source. Human life is sacred. All men must recognize that fact, our predecessor Pope John Twenty-Third recalled. From its very inception, it reveals the creating hand of God. Paragraph 14, Unlawful Birth Control Methods. Therefore, we base our words on the first principles of human and Christian doctrine of marriage, when we are obliged once more to declare that the direct interruption of the generative process already begun, and above all, all direct abortion, even for therapeutic reasons, are to be absolutely excluded as lawful means of regulating the number of children equally to be condemned, as the magisterium of the Church has affirmed on many occasions, is direct sterilization, 
whether of the man or of the woman, whether permanent or temporary, simply excluded in an action which either before or the moment of or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended to prevent procreation, whether as an end or as a means. Neither is it valid to argue as a justification for sexual intercourse, which is deliberately contraceptive, that a lesser evil is to be preferred to a greater one, or that such intercourse would merge with procreative acts of past and future to form a single entity and so be qualified by exactly the same moral goodness as these. Though it is true that sometimes it is lawful to tolerate a lesser moral evil in order to avoid a greater evil or in order to promote a greater good, it is never lawful, even for the gravest reasons, to do the evil that good may come of it. In other words, to intend directly something which of its very nature contradicts the moral order and which must therefore be judged unworthy of man, even though the intention is to protect or promote the welfare of an individual, of a family, or of society in general. Consequently, it is a serious error to think that a whole married life of otherwise normal relations can justify sexual intercourse, which is deliberately contraceptive and so intrinsically wrong. Paragraph 15. Lawful Therapeutic Means On the other hand, the Church does not consider at all illicit the use of those therapeutic means necessary to cure bodily diseases, even if a foreseeable impediment to procreation should result therefrom, provided such impediment is not directly intended for any motive whatsoever. Paragraph 16. Recourse to Infertile Periods Now, as we noted earlier, paragraph number three, some people today raise the objection against this particular doctrine of the church concerning the moral laws governing marriage, that human intelligence has both the right and the responsibility to control those forces of irrational nature which come within its ambit and to direct them toward its end beneficial to man. Others ask on the same point whether it is not reasonable in so many cases to use artificial birth control if by so doing the harmony and the peace of a family are better served and more suitable conditions are provided for the education of children already born. To this question, we must give a clear reply. The church is the first to praise and commend application of human intelligence to an activity in which a rational creature such as man is so closely associated with his creator but she affirms that this must be done within the limits of the order of reality established by God. If, therefore, there are well-grounded reasons for spacing births arising from the physical or psychological conditions of husband or wife or from external circumstances, the Church teaches that married people may then take advantage of the natural cycles imminent in the reproductive system and engage in marital intercourse only during those times that are infertile, thus controlling birth in a way that does not in the least offend the moral principles which we have just explained. Neither the Church nor her doctrine is inconsistent when she considers it lawful for married people to take advantage of the infertile period, but condemns as well unlawful the use of means which directly prevent conception 
even when the reasons given for the later practice may appear to be upright and serious. In reality, these two cases are completely different. In the former, the married couple rightly use a faculty provided them by nature. In the latter, they obstruct the natural development of the generative process. It cannot be denied that in each case, the married couple, for acceptable reasons, are both perfectly clear in their intention to avoid children and which to make sure that none will result. But it is equally true that it is exclusively in the former case that husband and wife are ready to abstain from intercourse during the fertile period as often as for reasonable motives the birth of another child is not desirable. And when the infertile period recurs, they use their marital intimacy to express their mutual love and safeguard their fidelity toward one another. In doing this, they certainly give proof of a true and authentic love. Paragraph 17, Consequences of Artificial Method. Reasonable men have become more deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine laid down by the church on this issue if they reflect on the consequences of methods and plans for artificial birth control. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way of marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weakness and to understand that human beings, and especially the young, who are so exposed to temptation, need incentives to keep the moral law, and it is an evil thing to make it easy for them to break that law. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires. No longer considering her as his partner whom he should surround with care and affection. Finally, careful consideration should be given to the danger of this power passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law, who will blame a government which, in its attempt to resolve the problems affecting an entire country, resorts to the same measures as are regarded as lawful by married people in the solution of a particular family difficulty, who will prevent public authorities from favoring those contraceptive methods which they consider more effective? Should they regard this as necessary, they may even impose their use on everyone. It could well happen, therefore, that when people, either individually or in a family or social life, experience the inherent difficulties of the divine law and are determined to avoid them, they may give in to the hands of public authorities the power to intervene in the most personal and intimate responsibility of husband and wife. Limits to man's power. Consequently, unless we are willing that the responsibility of procreating life should be left to the arbitrary decision of men, we must accept that there are certain limits beyond which it is wrong to go to the power of man over his own body and its natural functions. Limits, let it be said, which no one, whether as a private individual or as a public authority, can lawfully exceed. 
These limits are expressly imposed because of the reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural functions in the light of the principles we stated earlier and in accordance with a correct understanding of the principle of totality enunciated by our predecessor, Pope Pius XII. We will continue this on the next episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed so far what Paul VI has talked about, and we will review a little bit more in depth exactly what this means. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to invite you to the Uniquely Beautifully You program. The registration form is in the show notes, and I look forward to serving you.